everybody, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's Tuesday, October 27th, 2015. I'm Jeff Salzman, coming to you from beautiful Boulder, Colorado. I'm here, as always, with our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. How's it going, Brett? All is well. And I want to thank you all for listening tonight, uh, whether you're actually listening tonight live on Integral Radio or whether you're listening later on Daily Evolver or Integral Life or iTunes or Stitcher, it's uh, really good to have you be part of this um, listenership. And it's growing, and I really feel so privileged to be able to do my work and to have it be received and appreciated. Tonight, we can actually say a live hello to the mastermind behind Integral Radio, Corey DeVos, who is handling things over there. Hey, Corey, how's it going, man? Hey, guys, how you doing? Good. I, I wanted nice to invite to you. To, uh, hop on live yeah, and I, I wanted to invite you on live tonight because I don't think you get enough credit. Aww. <laughs> integral Life offers a, a lot of stuff. Not not just Integral Theory, which of course it offers. You know, the latest and greatest uh, Integral Voices, including Ken Wilber. But in terms of actually creating a real integral community and a real integral practice, you know, which is kind of right on schedule for what we're doing here as a movement, if that is indeed what we're doing. So I just wanted to give you a minute to talk about what's new and, you know, say hello to people. Yeah, well, thanks. And you're right. I mean, Integral Life really does, uh, we've got a lot of spinning plates. Uh, we like to describe it as an embarrassment of riches, and uh, it can get pretty embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> Things are going really well. You know, obviously, we're coming off of the launch of uh, Soul Spectrum Mindfulness, which is Ken's new web course, which I, I think people are getting really, really excited about. I'm really excited about it. You know, I was talking to Brett before the call. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that people are really responding to, uh, in particular with this course, is seeing Ken really fully take his seat as a teacher. You know, I think that Ken has always had, you know, it's, it's kind of the classic, you know, I'm not, I'm not a guru, I'm a candidate. You know, he's, he's always had a, well, in my experience, he's always had sort of a, an arm's length kind of relationship with stepping into the role of um, a spiritual teacher. And uh, in this course, I think he really did. You know, I, I get this, this sort of transmission from him yeah. that I'm, I, I use, you know, I'm used to getting through his books and I'm not as used to getting from, you know, Ken sort of in person. And, uh, you know, another thing I was talking about, it kind of reminded me of a, sort of a fun, loose conversation that um, we were having at Ken's Loft about 10 years ago. So this was a while back. And we were, we were playing with a concept that Ken liked to call at the time throw weight. <laughs> and uh, throw weight was sort of like a, a batting average for spiritual teachers. So, you know, from one to a hundred, what is their capacity to transmit? Um, you know, transmit Shaktipat or transmit sort of uh, an embodied experience of whatever yeah. state that teacher's trying to get across. And we went through, you know, sort of a list of teachers and, you know, uh, to avoid controversy, I won't mention any names that we brought up. But, uh, you know, eventually the question came, well, Ken, what about you? And you know, his response always kind of stuck with me. He said, you know, in writing, I think I'm about an 80. In person, I think I'm about a 20 or 25. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that was always interesting to me because then obviously, you know, uh, a few years later, Ken ended up getting ill and, uh, you know, going through that whole painful chapter uh, for a few years where he had to stop writing. And, you know, that obviously was weighing really heavy on him. And my experience with Ken that entire time was, you know, by the end of it, it was, it was almost like a transmission coming out of his eyeballs, or at least that was mm -hmm. my experience of it. Mm -hmm. There's there just something more... Uh, I don't know. There's just something about his presence that suddenly became really much more warm and much more, I don't even know how to really describe it other than just a sense of transmission coming across and coming through uh, and actually landing somewhere. And, you know, in, in a certain sense, that's, that's the context in which I hold this course is I think that Ken's capacity to transmit through speech has really dramatically increased over the last years. And I, I feel like we actually captured some precious part yeah. of that in this course. Yeah. Um, and I think people are, are, you know, really responding to it. Yeah, well, one of the things that I've always loved about Integral and why Integral has been my path, literally, is that understanding things has really cleared the brush for me. It has mm. opened up the space 
that then easily accommodates my heart and my loins and my belly and, you know, the whole bit. But the, the mind and intellect has led the way for me. And I think that's true yeah. for a lot of people in the integral community. And I yeah. think that it actually is a little bit of a push-off against post-modernity, which tends to sort of deprivilege the intellect yeah. and privilege more the embodied and, the, you know, all good, all right on schedule, no problem. But yep. that is, you know, one of the things that Ken does that is so, you know, uh, powerful and like a sword yeah. for people like me. And then to be in this role where he, you know, he always told me, you know, I'm a pandit, not a teacher. And, you know, I asked him, so what's the difference? And, and his response to me was, well, a teacher takes on the karma of his students. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to do yeah. that. And I get that. I mean, I, I'm yep. in the same way. And it, being a teacher, is, is, is Andrew Cohen has said, and, you know, he's living it out. Uh, yep. is a very dangerous profession, Jeff, he once told me. And and I yep. and and so I get that. And but you know, at Integral we get to rethink all of this. Right? Yeah. Oh absolutely. Yeah. And so well, Ken it actually can a unique challenge when it comes to, you know, actually trying to come up with a marketing page that, for example, is able to speak to an integral audience and a postmodern audience and hey, maybe even a modern audience as well. Yeah, you for know sure. that mindfulness itself is blowing up all around the world in all sorts of circles. Yeah. It, you know, poses a very interesting challenge to be able to find a way to communicate this material um, across so many different sort of ways of being and ways of engaging. Uh, in a way that people can, you know, find value and uh, and really get turned on by it. Right on. Actually, one of our students sent a, a, a really, really nice, you know, I hadn't even asked for testimonials yet, which is obviously, you know, something that we do. And this guy, uh, Bob C. is his name. He sent, he sent me just a really nice note that I think just framed it really beautifully. And yeah, if you don't it. mind, I just want to read a few sentences of it. He writes, uh, I can't believe what is happening here. I feel like Ken is whispering secret instructions into our ears. Not only are these completely revolutionary and new, but I feel that in the past, these teachings would only have been available to a very few initiated, special, and long-time meditators, only available to a select few in the inner circle. And yet here it is, available to the peons, the masses. I feel that Ken and you guys at Integral have smashed down the temple doors and are lighting in the pittance. A thousand blessings into Ken. I love you so much. And I love you too, Bobsy. That, was, uh, that really <laughs> warms my heart to read. And, right on. Uh, thanks for sending that along. Well, thank you. And thank you for all you do and all you do at Integral Life. And again, the, the new course is called Full Spectrum Mindfulness. It's by Ken Wilber. And just in general, Corey, are you still on? What's the, you know, to, to be a part of Integral Life, which of course is not just this spectrum of, of information, but also a real integral virtual community yep. uh, of practitioners. Uh, what's the, what's, what is it per month to join? Uh, we do, uh, well, fourteen ninety five per month. Or we do uh, ninety nine dollars per year, which comes yeah. out to about eight twenty five a month. Cool. Uh, which is, you know, it's cheaper than well, I spend on networks. You know. Cheaper than I spend on coffee. Yeah, exactly. Well worth it. And you know, I. <laughs> this is a little inside baseball, people. I, I know there are some people who are new to Integral who are a little bit nervous that we're going to be serving Kool Aid here in a minute. <laughs> but uh, you know, check it out uh, and and see you know how it works for you. All right. Yeah. So thanks, yeah. well, Corey. Thanks, Jeff, and thank you for everything, man. I, I, I really sincerely believe that everything that we're trying to do uh, would not be nearly as possible um, without you and all the hard work that you've put into the space over the years. And we love you very much. Oh, thank you for everything. well, thank you. You made my day. <laughs> all right. Uh, all right. Great show. I'm going to sign off and yeah. I'll be uh, watching for comments in the window. So yeah, cool. Yeah, hi, and, and, you know, send them up on my screen if you get something. Uh, yeah. All right. So, yeah. So, you know, what we do here in the Daily Evolver is, you know, part we're part of the integral community. There is such a thing. It's uh, a worldwide community of people who find this theory of not only evolution in terms of biology, but evolution in terms of consciousness and culture to be very compelling. And we recognize that there's a leading edge of both consciousness and cultural evolution. And we recognize some of those markers in our own consciousness and in our own culture. Uh, you know, we do that at, uh, here, and I have my, the website, and uh, Corey's doing it over at Integral Life. Uh, we do it um, in terms of politics. We do it in terms of spirituality. We we're just talking about Ken Wilber's latest spiritual offering, uh, economics, war, and peace. And tonight, 
I want to focus in on politics, and uh, my international friends will forgive me uh, if I focus on the American political landscape this week, because it's been really interesting these last couple weeks. There are a couple big stories that are, are really getting people's attention. You know, we're, we're uh, three months away from our first primary uh, in Iowa in, I think, February, and then the election's, uh, you know, a little over a, a year away. So, you know, that's a big deal. It's the Super Bowl for us political junkies. And the, the one big story, I said there's two, the one big story is on the Republican side of the street, and that is this ascendancy of Ben Carson, uh, who is leading solidly now, not only in the first primary state, Iowa, which, which I just mentioned, but is also leading nationally in the latest CBS New York Times poll, which is a, you know, heavy hitter poll. Uh, and he's pulled ahead of his uh, main competitor, his polar opposite, his doppelganger. It's the funniest thing. Talk about polarities. Donald Trump. So anyway, we'll look at that story in a minute. But I want to start with the other side of the street. And that is the big story from the Democratic primary. And that is the sudden animation. And I wish I could think of another phrase, but the, the coming alive of Hillary Clinton. In the debates two weeks ago, and again in an 11-hour grilling by the Republicans on the House Benghazi Committee. And, you know, I'm surprised. I, I, I don't know what to make of this Hillary. Uh, a few shows ago, uh, a couple weeks ago on, on Daily Evolver, I, I hit Hillary pretty hard is somebody who is claiming the mantle of a political dynasty, that you know, the Clinton dynasty, the two-for-one Bill Clinton dynasty, the two-for-one being him, Bill, and her, Hillary. But that he, you know, she really didn't have the goods to actually carry it off on her own. You know, it's an oft-told story of people handing down businesses and dynasties to children and grandchildren, and, you know, they don't necessarily have the... The, the goods of the original uh, 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 dynastic leader. And by goods, I mean from an integral perspective, that's actually a technical term, an integral. <laughs> but it's what we call subtle energy. It's the upper right quadrant uh, on the quadrant map in integral theory. And it's basically the juice, this sort of energetic vibrational juju that we want in our leaders. And um, and Hillary had it. Has had it in the last couple of weeks. And I want to know who took our boring old schoolmarm Hillary away and replaced her with this, you know, sparkling, confident, good-natured, easy to laugh. Maybe she laughs too hard sometimes, but still, it's good. She's but also gruff, impatient, um, and ultimately dare I say, forward thinking? I mean, I actually got that vibe. So, you know, like I was saying, we love Hillary. <laughs> There's a principle that actually illuminates this, a principle in developmental theory that says that the more behaviors and, you know, I would add vibrational energetics that one can transmit more, ever more fluidly, the higher your stage of development. And you certainly, the more interesting and effective you are, the more you can do that. Until you get to, <laughs> one of my cynical friends said about Hillary, he said, she said, you know, the final skill is faking sincerity. And this is, a, of course, a, a, a famous postmodern proverb, I would term it. Once you can fake sincerity, you've got it made. It's so deeply cynical. I love it. And, and you know, you know, maybe that's what she was doing. I'm, I'm sure that's what she was doing in a certain way. She, you know, she's a pro she's you know she's a thoroughbred she's you know she's 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 doing what she has to do but i have to say that i actually think she tapped into th something authentic and i know that or i don't know that but i feel that because it really got my attention and i am able to listen to her like i have nev never been able to listen to her before and she's been around for a long time and i would say that that's true for a lot of my friends as well and of course you know, in terms of her performance in the debate and how much better she was than these four other guys, I'm trying to even remember, was it four or three? Um, but, you know, the pundits would talk about, of course, she was won the debate. She's had over 20 
practice. I mean, she's d- done presidential debates for 20 plus times. And of course, that's true. She ran in 2008. There were tons of debates. And her competitors had never been in a presidential debate. But I have to tell you, I watched a lot of those earlier debates in 2007, 2008. And, you know, a lot of them were where she was debating my guy, Obama. And I never saw anything like what we saw two weeks ago. Um, Back then, I saw a woman who was downplaying her womanhood, who gave programmed, programmatic answers to questions, who talked in that way that politicians have of not wanting to offend anyone. You could feel the operating system in the background choosing the proper answer and facial expression and hand movements. And that, you know, that's not transmission. That is just behavior. And it's not very connective and moving to other people. And, you know, it's interesting to note that, it, you know, it might have been Hillary, it might have been the culture, a combination of both. But eight years ago, the first really serious woman candidate for president, and actually the first black candidate for president, they were both understating these essential parts of their identity. She is a woman and he is an African-American. Um, I do think that Obama's personalities shone through anyway, but... Um, And I think that for Hillary and Obama both, it was probably good politics then, just as it it is good politics now for Hillary to be playing up who she is and really inhabiting her womanhood, her grandmotherliness. It's, It's fun to see. And also, you know, she's keeping her, uh, you know, fighter. We'll get to that in a a second because it's interesting to to me that what I'm seeing here is more than just Hillary carrying out this grand narrative of, of, you know, of gender equality in the highest levels of political office. It's almost like she just decided, you know, to be Hillary, to be Hillary, daughter of Dorothy, who was her, you know, really exceptional mother who died some years ago. Uh, Yesterday, Hillary turned 68 years old. If she wins the presidency, she'll be 70 years old when she's inaugurated. And, you know, it's one of the interesting things about consciousness development is that, you know, we know that children develop like mad, you know, as they're born and they grow into the, you know, the fours and fives and six and 12 and teenage and, and into the 20s. And then there's this sense and, and actually a reality that people don't actually develop much horizontal, vertically in their um, 30s, 40s, 50s. They're, you know, busy doing their careers and their families. And, you know, they're otherwise developed or, or they're otherwise occupied, not necessarily on themselves, even though, of course, all of what they're doing is building up. But then often we see a developmental jump again begin to happen in people's 60s and 70s and 80s as they you know, get real about life and less fearful and more um, authentic uh, and um, less afraid than they were in their earlier uh, stages. So, you know, I see this in her and it comes out in, uh, you know, one of the things that was most impressive to me is that she's letting her redness show. Uh, we, I often talk about how we look for leaders who developmentally can express the red warrior stage of development. And you can see it on the charts that I have posted at uh, dailyevolver.com under the theory tab. There's a couple charts, if you're not really that familiar with integral theory, that are worth looking at. Uh, again, dailyevolver.com, theory tab. And one of them is this, you know, idea of the stages of consciousness and cultural evolution. And there's the red stage where it's just about might is right. It's just about who's going to fucking win, you know, who's, who's on top. And we want our leaders to be able to really, you know, just use power sometimes. Forget ideology, forget fairness. Sometimes you just got to win. And she demonstrated this twice 
in the last couple of weeks with this new Hillary, once in word and once in deed. And in word, it was in the debate, she was asked the question, who are your enemies? And first of all, I expected her to say some answer about, uh, nobody's my enemies. I work with people, people have different you know, perspectives, all of the things that I would say. <laughs> but she didn't. She gave her list of enemies, you know, the Iran- Iranians, the bankers, you know, whatever. And she ended it with, and the Republicans. And she said it with a shrug and a smile. But I must say, I did gasp and hold my hanky to my mouth. I couldn't believe it, you know. But as I think about it, I get it. And I've, I've actually, it energized me. And I thought she's going to be creamed by the, the you know, Fox News and those guys that she has been for that. But, you know, I get it. And what she's doing, in, from my, you know, trying to put it in an integral perspective is she's like working the polarity which is clearly still online. We thought maybe in 2008 with Obama that we were beyond polarity and we weren't red states and blue states, we were purple states. But as it turns out, uh, we're red and blue states still and red and blue people. And, um, and we want then, both sides want, to bring our best fighters to the arena. You know, again, especially after Obama who presented himself, who pre- presented himself originally as a uniter, until he realized, you know, shortly in his presidency, that the Republicans were playing a win-lose, zero-sum game for the most part. And that's actually fair enough. That's evolutionarily potent. It's a a stage and a path. And, you know, we're just not ready to make nice yet. There's a whole lot of people who don't agree, who aren't on board with the perspective that you think is the obvious truth. And so— Let's really take this thing to the mat then. Let's bar no holds. This is a fight to the finish and see who wins with the American people. You know, we basically take it out to the, to the court of public opinion, to the voters, and so that we can get on with things and we make it clear. And that's the posture, of course, that Obama has taken more in the last couple of years. Uh, as he said in his interview in the Rolling Stone, he said, I'm fearless now. I mean, I don't care about the things that used, I used to care about that used to hold me back. And, I, you know, I love that. That's a, that's a, a marker, as I said earlier, of, of integral thinking. And I think Hillary is ready to pick up that torch. And she has deep credentials as a fighter. So it's interesting. And let's, of course, Remember that ultimately, this is not a fight between her and her opponent. It's a fight between worldviews, between a more modern, postmodern worldview in the case of the Democrats and a more, you know, modern and traditional point of view in the case of the conservatives. You know, we can mix that up, but those are the basic poles. And evolution's goal is for that polar fight to illuminate the whole territory more clearly in a higher resolution so that through the fighting itself, we actually, you know, click the next notch on the Google map and we see, oh my God, there's all kinds of stuff in here that I didn't know. I thought I believed this and I thought I felt I felt I believe this. And, and, you know, both sides get to bring out the best they got. The best arguments, research, charts and graphs, case studies, they get to appeal to our worst fears and greed. (laughs) They get to to appeal to our reason. They get to appeal to all of the vibrational points in our chakra, all all the, uh, you know, the, the developmental stages that are still with us. And they get to do it with their best, most persuasive people. We see what wins, what loses, what works, what doesn't, and we integrate. And that is, you know, one of the built-in engines of certainly humanity and I think apparently also the cosmos itself. So um, before I get to um, Ben Carson, I want to do just share a little bit of inside info, a little inside baseball on the Clintons and integral theory and and 
Ken Wilber and uh, other thinkers. Now, I don't know. I don't know if Hillary herself is familiar with integral thinking, but clearly Bill Clinton and also Al Gore, both of them have spoken publicly of Ken Wilber and integral theory. They talk about American philosopher Ken Wilber and stages of development. I mean, at Davos, Bill Clinton went on about it for some period of time. So it may have been a bit of a thing in the intellectual life of their administration. And if so, hallelujah. And I'm sure Hillary has, you know, sort of basic sort of knowledge of it. For sure, we know that she <laughs> dabbled in some uh, progressive spirituality, much to her regret, I think. Uh, she worked with Jean Houston for a while when she was in the White House, I think, second or third year into the White House. And, you know, a lot of us know Jean Houston. We work with Jean Houston. Jean Houston is a force of nature herself, and, uh, uh, and she is an, an evolutionary teacher. And so she did this exercise with Hillary in the White House, where together she facilitated Hillary having a conversation with Eleanor Roosevelt. And, you know, so that's cool. And, you know, <laughs> and for progressive spirituality, we do like three of those things before lunch every day, you know. And, and, and of course, integral or progressive spirituality is included in integral. So we still do that sort of thing. But of course, you know, moderns and particularly traditionalists, uh, they don't know what to think about that. So the media went crazy with it. They called it a seance with the, you know, Gene Houston, this medium uh, on the Truman balcony. And the hardcore conservatives are resurrecting it now in preparation for the new Hillary. And this is from uh, a website, a conservative Christian website called The Cutting Edge. And this is the, the thinking. Uh, of about that from, you know, the most hardcore traditionalists. So they say in their website, all New Age adherents are taught spiritual meditation, where they are taught to empty their mind while chanting mantras over and over. So far, so good. This action will cause a person to go into an altered state of consciousness. So far, so good. Where the mind loses its conscious association with the body. At this point, the mind can be manipulated by spiritual beings without the person ever being aware as to what has happened. Here, I'm not so sure. I don't know. Do not be deceived. When a New Age adherent receives their guiding spirits, that person is demonically possessed. They will object most strenuously, saying that this cannot be so because they feel so uplifted and so full of happiness from these spirits that surely they cannot be evil. What they do not understand is that Satan is the great deceiver, a superhuman being that can turn into angels of light in order to deceive. So that's, you know, a pretty airtight case they have there. And, you know, I was saying, you know, I'm not so sure. I mean, I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I, I used to think that all of these kinds of exercises where we visualize and, you know, the sort of light conjuring, if you will, was just a way of accessing the hidden aspects of our own psyches. And I still think that's true. But I don't really pretend to know the geography there that well, that there can't also be a real Eleanor Roosevelt out there, or an Eleanor Rooseveltness out there that is ontologically separate. Um, I don't know. Uh, if anybody has <laughs> any ideas that can set me straight on this, Please let me know. So there's some, that's some insights into Hillary. So now we want to move over to the other side of the street, to the Republicans, where we have also a big new ascendant leader, and this is Dr. Ben Carson, who is now ahead in Iowa, which, which is the first state uh, in the primaries, but also, as of three or four hours ago, uh, first in a major national poll by CBS and the New York Times. And I mentioned earlier that he's pulling away from his polar opposite, Donald Trump, who is, you know, it's really so interesting, stylistically, for sure. You know, Carson is quiet. Trump is loud. Carson, you can, you know, talk about hearing the operating system grinding. I mean, when you see him talk, he has like facial tics where the 
you know, wheels are turning. There's almost no spontaneity that I can detect in the man. And meanwhile, Trump is completely, at least seemingly, unfiltered. Carson has this flat affect where he, you know, stays within the 10-yard lines of any kind of emotionality, while Trump is, with his voice, his hands, the whole bit, he's a force of nature. And, you know, I think it was just, I, I saw today Jake Tapper on CNN was interviewing uh, Ben Carson about this amazing news about, you know, not only Iowa, which would be big news in and of itself, but nationally in a very, very credible heavy hitter poll. What do you think? And Carson's answer was, I, I hope I could do this. Polls will go up and polls will go down. Nobody should be terribly alarmed and nobody should be terribly excited. <laughs> I mean, you got to see this guy. I mean, I, I want to take a nap. I mean, this, I, I, as I said, Carson is the central casting, not angry black guy. And I think that's, of course, part of his uh, appeal or part of what opens the door to getting the appeal for conservatives. Then it, probably everybody. Um, but that's, so that's the style part in terms of the polarity between him and, and Trump. Substantively, actually, Carson and Trump are very much the same. They're making assertions, both of them, instead of actually offering political policy. Uh, Trump is more red. We're going to build a wall. We're going to throw them out, blah, blah, blah. Carson is more amber, where he talks about we need to be reasonable and rational and uh, but still, we have to stay true to our values, our Judeo-Christian values, peace through strength, hard work and families. We have to fight the enemy, which is ISIS, Muslims. But also, we have to fight the enemy within our own country and culture, the secular liberal left, who is out to get me, he says. And, you know, we have to resist them in their redistributionist economics, their politically correct thought police and their sexual sin, you know. And a lot of people really agree with that. And conservatives, social conservatives do. They're, they, they've, and they feel that they are losing, and they are, in a sense, all of these battles. And when you're as turned off and disgusted by the way of things and the direction things are going and the government and culture, uh, most Republicans, you know, they're actually tired of operating within the system. It didn't work. It doesn't work in these very important ways. And so you want to bring it down and start over. And that's what both of these guys kind of promise. So regarding Carson's appeal, in the spirit of his own disregard of politically correct of political correctness, I would offer that I think you know, fundamental to his appeal to conservatives is indeed his blackness. You know, if this guy was white, he would be completely unremarkable. He'd be the guy you know down the street. You know, there's a lot of very smart, very accomplished conservatives, you know, doctors, lawyers, whatever, that feel that political correctness is a scourge. They really do believe that if Jews had had guns, Hitler would have had a lot harder time taking power. I doubt that many of them think that Obamacare is the worst thing to happen to America since slavery, which Carson has said. But, you know, everybody gets a little bit of crazy. <laughs> and even if Ben Carson's head is not completely screwed on right, his heart's in the right place. And so that's, a, you know, has a great magnetism to conservatives, which is interesting because you know, the, the liberal rap on conservatives, and one of the reasons that liberals think conservatives hate Obama is because he's black. So this flies in the face of that. And my theory has been that that's exactly what is so appealing to conservatives, is, you know, liking Ben Carson is proof that they're not racist. And besides, it's just the primary, you know, there's there's plenty of time to choose the real president. The primary is the time to send an ideological message 
the general election, that's when you get serious. So, you know, I thought they were trying to prove to the world that they're not racist. Then I thought, well, they want to prove to themselves that they're not racist. And this is, this is all, again, I, 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 I have no complaint here. This is all evolution in action. My conservative grandparents didn't want to prove to themselves that they weren't racist. That wasn't something they were that interested in. But now, you know, this is not your father's or grandfather's conservative party. Um, and so, you know, I think that we can expand our understanding to give them credit for that. But, you know, in the last couple of days, I've realized that that's even lacking in generosity. <laughs> you know, that, that I'm realizing that the conservative heart, too, cries out for wholeness. They actually want to know, we all do, us, you know, sort of ghettoized white people. We want to know and feel closer to a black person, a black people. And, and you know, all gay people, you know, you become in demand when you're gay at this point. There's something in, this is the other side. We talk so much about evolution being red in tooth and claw and that it's about survival of the fittest and competition. And that's true. But even Darwin, from the very beginning of evolutionary theory, said that just as important is the um, power of, of choice and love and connection with human beings. And we just can't help ourselves. Hallelujah. Because this is what moves the ball. And if we look at it from an integral perspective, we can see that as we want to integrate races and different types of people, that stage still trumps everything. Altitude, the, the level of development still trumps everything. You know, I don't want to know a red warrior gang member. I don't, I mean, I, I may want to know them, but I, they're not going to be my friend. I'm not going to feel comfortable. It's, we're not going to vibe. But then again, I don't want to hang out with the white counterpart, the hell's angel either, you know. And, and, and in terms of traditionalists, they don't want to hang out with a liberal college professor of either race. I do. And so you see that the stage of development trumps everything else. But still, it's interesting that conservatives have rallied around this Dr. Ben Carson and and particularly Iowa conservatives where he's leading by a lot and you know God bless the northern Europeans you know because that you know, the northern Europeans also came and, and and settled the northern United States so Minnesota Iowa these these um, Midwest uh northern Midwest states are they, they're conservatives but they're conservatives like Scandinavians are. I mean, they, they have a, a, an openness that is really interesting. And I'd love to have somebody explain it to me better than I understand it. But, you know, what it amounts to is that, uh, although Ben Carson would hate this description, he's the recipient of a certain soft affirmative action by conservatives. And again, I'm not complaining. I think it's good. I think it's all heartfelt. It's all voluntary. And it represents an impulse to wholeness that was literally not available to earlier generations of traditionalists. And so this is another way that we can see evolution at work. And, you know, it really brings up another important point about integral theory. And about this time in our history. And what we're seeing, because history accelerates, stages used to be online for, well, the Red Warrior stage or the Empire stage was online for 10,000 years. There was some, you know, lagging tribalists and so forth, but 10,000 years, there was nothing ahead of the Warrior stage. And then we have the traditional stage was online for maybe 4,000 years. They're both still online, but 300 years ago, we got a new stage. Modernity. 70 years ago, we got post-modernity. So you can see that human beings and, and human consciousness is evolving in a radically accelerative rate. And now we have integral. 
And they're all, particularly the last four, integral, postmodern, modern, and traditional, are all alive and well in the developed world. And also online in individuals. And so there's... You know, it's interesting to see how that manifests in people's lives. I can think of two examples. One of them is just when I think of Iowa and and my, I, I know a lot of people in Iowa. I used to spend a lot of time in Iowa. And I know a young couple, they're in their probably early 40s now, very, very traditionalist in terms of their politics, in terms of their uh, conservative, evangelical, Bible-based religion, which they feel deeply. They went, uh, after having a couple biological kids, to Central City, Chicago, and adopted two disadvantaged, unwanted African-American young children. And I just thought that was so beautiful. I mean, it's really taking, you know, the Christian message of love and helping the the least of us. Uh, that's and they took it to heart, and they have. This is years ago. The, the the kids are in their early teens, and it's a vibrant and wonderful family. And that impulse in them, even though they're traditionalists in many ways in terms of their values, that impulse to integrate at a higher level—that's green, you know. That race doesn't matter. In fact, we want to actively work to bring in the other. The, the previously marginalized. That's not a traditionalist impulse. That's a, a postmodern impulse. And people have both now because they're all online and they're all mixed up. You know, this idea that people are moving in lockstep between one stage and the other, that's, you know, just a basic, you know, misunderstanding of the map because that's what the map shows. But the map is not the territory. And a better way to look at this is that people move up the stages through sort of an ever-morphing probability cloud. So that if I'm solidly postmodern, I'm going to have 10% of my impulses are still going to be traditionalist, and maybe even earlier. And 25% are going to be modern. And 47% are going to be postmodern. And 12%, I, I'm not doing the math very well here. But you see the point is that we, in different lines of development, in different situations and circumstances, we have a lot more available to us. Now, we'll still have a center of gravity that we could identify as being traditional, modern, postmodern, integral, whatever. But within that is just a lot of different probabilities that can happen uh, in any given moment. And so I, I was talking about that. One example of that being my young friends from from Iowa. Another example is that we just saw in the political scene here in America is Paul Ryan, who has agreed after you know a couple of weeks of pretty intense pressure from the Republicans to run for the Speaker of the House. And he came to his Republican caucus with a series of demands, for most of which was that he was insisting on family time, that he have his weekends with his kids. Now, this is a Ayn Rand economic conservative, uh, but he is also a conservative who thinks outside the box in some ways, particularly with race and so forth. But um, when he's talking about insisting on family time, I mean— <laughs> Can you imagine Winston Churchill, you know, going to the British Parliament and demanding family time so that he didn't have to work weekends? Uh, or, you know, Richard Nixon, I, I must spend more time with Tricia and Julie. No. I mean, you would never hear a traditional or an, a modern man talk like this. We might expect this somewhat from an orange modern woman, but not a man. I mean, women don't really get there till post-modernity, you know, in a way, where they claim their full rights as a, you know, something other than a, a gender. But, you know, at these earlier stages, 
people would privilege their careers and jobs and responsibilities over their families. I mean, I guess that's how we would see it now, but they wouldn't see it that way. They'd see it that they were doing this for their family. They were working all the time, running around, being successful so that their children could be proud of them and have the opportunities that children of less successful people don't have. And this is their job. And, you know, you hope for the best and you have a wife who takes care of things. And if one of the kids are acting up too far outside the box, you deal with it, um, you know, if necessary, by sending them to a nice convent or a military school. So, you know, Paul Ryan is economically traditionalist, uh, uh, libertarian, perhaps, in many ways, but when it comes to gender and uh, family politics, he's green all the way. And this is what we're seeing more and more and more of. And as intercalists, we just want to notice that. Okay. So now I'd like to shift gears, and I'm happy to, away from politics and into the aesthetic which is a wonderful place to be. Is this when I get to do a shout out to the Dragonheart Sangha over at Robin Brooks' house? Oh, really? Are they listening? Yeah. Oh, cool. <laughs> hey, Dragonheart Sangha over at Brooke and Rob's house. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brooke and Rob are, you know, really pillars of the integral community. Rob just wrote a book called The Elegant Self and has done so much uh, in terms of thinking of uh, how the higher stages of development, particularly, which I love, manifest. And Brooke, his wife, uh, has been, for me, just a longtime friend and collaborator. She's uh, a dancer that I've admired and uh, just a beautiful person who uh, we have used many, many times uh, in our, uh, our faculty of, of seminars and events to really transmit a, um, you know, an embodied understanding of what it means to evolve. And so anyway, Brooke just produced a beautiful book of poetry called Feed Your Vow, which I love that. I think that's three poetic words together, Feed Your Vow, subhead, Poems for Falling into Fullness. And I love the book, and I love the poetry. So I wanted to invite Brooke onto the show and uh, so we're going to start by just letting her speak for herself through her poet poetry. And this is one uh, a very short poem. What's it called, Brett? I don't know, actually. I think she'll say so. This is Brooke McNamara from her book, Feed Your Vow. Medicine. Our massive plastic brains watch the ice melting through our hot hands the gyres turning their awful luminosity. I want to receive anyone willing in any condition and love them full-bodied till we fall to pieces and rain down as God's broken heart nourishing the good earth. I do love that. So what I'm going to play next is, I don't know, five or six minutes, Brett, of uh, a talk that I had with Brooke uh, when she came over. She was going to come over just to read some poems that I would use in the show. And I, I often like to end the show with poetry. And uh, we decided to have a little chat. So here's a few minutes from our chat. Brett and Brooke McNamara and I are sitting here in my studio office. And we've just heard you, Brooke, read three of your poems from your new book, Feed Your Vow. Mm -hmm. And I guess I would say that we're sitting here in some version of the timeless now. It's really, really so wonderful to, to hear you read this work that came out of you. You know, that didn't exist. Yeah. And you made it exist. And that's the great act of creativity, which is so fundamental to being human. Mm -hmm. So you made it happen. And I would like to just hear a little bit about how that was and how that feels and how you're feeling even in this moment. Mm -hmm. Well, in this moment, I'm, I am sort of giddy and beaming and I feel so happy to be here and honored to share with you guys and 
There's no other conversation I'd rather be having actually around art and creativity. It's really where I feel most lit up. Yeah. So I'm thrilled. And, um, oh my gosh, writing this book has been such a magical ride. And I feel like I've been handed this gift from somewhere beyond me, but through my own two hands. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of coming down from a week of all the funny layers of insecurity that can come up after. Really? Yeah, because I I did a, a book launch party last Friday, a week ago on my birthday, and it was so fabulous and magical and perfect. And then, um, you know, it stretched me open and little um, funny voices of, Shame can come in after that, but <laughs> I know. It, yeah, ain't it something being human? Totally. Yeah, I'm used to it because I've been performing my whole life, and it does never not happen. I, right. I never don't get nervous, yeah. and I never don't feel those voices afterwards. So. Yeah, me too. Really. Yeah, and you know, I think one of the things that we hope for as we develop and evolve our consciousness is that we see them as you know, in the best sense of the word, it's. They're, they're voices, they're parts of us mm-hmm. that we can sort of welcome. And mm-hmm. uh, your, your poetry gets to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just this being human. I don't care. How, I love that first poem where I don't care how wrecked you are. Right. Come to me right. and we'll dissolve into the rain that nourishes the earth. Or mm-hmm. I forget the deal, right. but yeah. beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and really does in... Two short verses really capture that coming together of flawed, imperfect beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So awesome. I guess it can't be any other way. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I would never, um, I would, I would take, you know, millions of these voices on for the experience of of the transcendence of getting to create. They're kind of all part of the same circle. The voices that come through when I'm in my most connected moments of writing and the voices that come through when I feel most insecure, like they're all welcome. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you made this happen and that, you know, so it's one thing to sit and write poetry at night and, you know, the fire's and burning and, you know, the baby's asleep and all of that good stuff. And it's another to, you know, take them seriously and, you know, put them in the form that you really want and then take them out to people and offer them, How's that work? Uh, it's been, it's happened really fast. Um, I mean, I've been writing since I was a little girl and I've wanted to be, you know, a real writer since I was a teenager and I wrote my college essay on on that specific deep burning desire. But then I went into this dance career for um, about 12 years and that took center stage because I, I was young enough to really give my full life force to dance. And now that I'm still dancing, but I had my baby a year and a half ago and something about, um, I, I mean, I think 90% of this book happening is the, is a byproduct of the experience of giving birth. Really? Oh yeah. Totally. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I said at my book launch party, I feel like my um, my physical body, but also the central, like the subtle central channel of my body was literally ripped open mm-hmm. in the process of giving birth. And then through that space, this book fell out. Mm-hmm. And one of my best friends said, oh, how cool. It's kind of like afterbirth, but it's less gross and more interesting to look yes, at. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it really feels that way. Yeah, It feels like I just was able to dissolve and let go of a lot of desires to please mentors mm-hmm. I've had who I love and learned a lot from um, and desires to please the world or whoever this like ideal reader is. I just giving birth was such an encounter with death mm-hmm. that literally, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but I, I just had this feeling of like F it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to die. Yeah. I want to say what I need to say and leave that as my offering. Yes. And, um, something about the new space that I wouldn't have chosen to feel in my system. I mean, it was agonizing to have that space like opened in me, but now I, it feels like sacred space and a sacred rite of passage where like into that space, into those cracks, voices are trickling in 
and also this calling rose up. I mean, literally I was sitting in meditation on retreat with, with um, Musho Sensei, Diane, last December, the very first morning meditation, sitting next to her in the dark, whole community around. And I felt this rush of energy. And then it was like, so clear. Wow. You got to write a book. And it was, I went to my computer after that and I, I wrote down a uh, book, 2015 poetry. <laughs> I actually wrote your name. Really? Yeah. I wrote, wow. I wrote Jeff Salzman and I didn't, I didn't know. I thought, you know, I know Jeff loves poetry. Maybe I'll just talk to him to, to get inspired. Right. But it's funny to sit here with you now because I remember writing those things and thinking, am I crazy? Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm honored. And I consider your poetry to be great. I mean, I, you. what you just read, and we're going to play the longer one here at the end, is a beautiful and great piece of poetry that I followed as, as, as each you know, move in the poem happened. I was right there with you. Awesome. What? Well, how delicious is that? Yeah. My goodness. Awesome. Yeah. And I actually got, because I've read that poem a few times. I've loved the poem. I didn't get till this listening to you read it, that when you talked about erase the next to the last sentence you just heard, uh-huh. that you weren't just playing with me. Right. That you actually meant it literally. Right. And how that really just sort of, chemically changed mm-hmm. that whole poem that I had already loved. Mm. And I thought, Jesus, this is a real teaching mm. and a real transmission of teaching. And I feel more spacious and wise having listened to it. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm so happy to be able to share it with our people. Thank you so much. You bet. Yeah. And the name of the poem is? 33 Ways to Get Better at Not Getting Better and So Possibly Really Get Better. Wow. I love that. <laughs> Thanks, Brooke. You're welcome. So thank you, everybody. I'm just going to let Brooke uh, deliver this poem for us, and uh, we'll sign off now, and uh, she'll take us out. Thank you so much for listening to The Daily Evolver, and we'll see you here again next week. Bye, folks. Here's Brooke. 33 ways to get better at not getting better, and so possibly really get better. The force of love is eating you alive, whether you align with it, or not. Also, you're going to live forever. Forever here is defined as up until the end of you. Always erase the second to last sentence you just heard. Become earnestly curious about the character and lifespan of dust bunnies. Always erase the second to last sentence you just heard. Let your shadow lead you out walking near mountains and rivers and fade in and out of shade. Finishing and beginning, beginning and finishing, making and erasing, erasing and making. Every new gesture contains a core of no trace. Let this no trace lead the cooking of eggs and asking of hands. Invite Dogen Zenji for breakfast and ask his hand in marriage. What is reality? An icicle forming in fire. Tomorrow will be. Tomorrow will be yesterday. Tomorrow will be yesterday erased two sentences later, leaving no trace. Sit till you feel forever moving. Move till you feel forever settle into yesterday. Praise the way your mind is melting into more. Note the ways in which you make yourself like a cave. Praise the cave with a trap door into a perspective that's empty of eyes. Follow cake crumbs in the dark one gulp at a time till you fall through a trap door into a birthday party just for you. It's all for you. It's all for you, my love. But don't forget, you're going to live forever. And let me just say this plainly, you don't know. Hear it like a heavy hole in your heart that will lead you home. You don't know. Hear it like the only real inheritance you've got, the only one that well befriends the finishing of you. Let going go. It's too late to be ready. Erase yourself and remember the unknown as the love that's taking you. 
Remember the love, my love. Remember the love.